What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in. On August 1st, 1920, about 100 years ago, Henrietta Lacks was born in Virginia to a family of tobacco farmers. Miss Lacks lived a difficult and short life, dying of complications from cervical cancer. Without her knowledge or her consent, her cells were used and shared within the scientific community for decades. At the time, it wasn't uncommon for doctors to take their patients' biopsies and use them for research without the patient's awareness. There are more than 17,000 patents involving HeLa cells, short for Henrietta Lacks. And this research has become the foundation for a multi-billion dollar industry. Although I'm certainly grateful for the new knowledge that scientists were able to create based on HeLa cells, it does raise questions about bioethics and human rights to your own biology. The reason I'm talking about this story is because it gives us an opportunity to think about how we treat the rights to data privacy in our world today. Our personal health data is being used and shared with multiple organizations, largely under the guise of terms of service, terms of use, different privacy policies, or user agreements. Unfortunately, most individuals who sign up on a health app or sign a consent form at a hospital may not be fully aware of or even care about how their data is being accessed downstream. My guest today, Dr. Ali Lovies, has been working in the field of clinical informatics for over 30 years. She is a leader in helping healthcare organizations manage change triggered by emerging technologies. From 2018 to mid-2020, she worked as Managing Director, Federal Practice, Digital Health, and U.S. Healthcare Blockchain Leader at Ernst & Young, where she met with 180 clients in 18 months to talk about blockchain. That is some serious FaceTime with executive decision makers. As the current acting chief privacy officer at Consensus Health, she shared her perspective on the blockchain landscape in healthcare and why data privacy rights are so important. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal financial, or medical advice, please do your own research before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Dr. Ali Lovies, who since July of 2020 is the first Chief Privacy Officer, Foundation Relations and North American Markets Leader at Consensus Health which is a company that many of my listeners may already be familiar with. Ali is board certified in clinical informatics and has had tons of experience as chief medical information officer at multiple organizations. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about healthcare, data, cybersecurity, AI, and blockchain. Ali, I am so excited to have this conversation. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. And I think to get started, it would be best if you can share a little bit about your background, your you know career so far, so that the audience has a little bit of context. Sure. Um, 
I'm probably older than most of the people you usually interview. And I don't think I'm that old, but when you hear the story, you'll be like, oh, that's where she came from. So <laughs> You do not look that old at all. I would, I'm not even going to begin to guess, but definitely you're kind. Very, very young. You're kind. You're kind. Well, when I tell you the story that when I, I went to undergraduate, and if you wanted to do computer science, you were using punch cards. Would that help? Kind of put it in a time frame. You're like, what are punch cards? Probably, right? <laughs> But um, I went to University of Rochester, undergraduate, and I really came because I wanted to play soccer there. I, oh, it was great for, I wanted to be a doctor, and it was great proximity to the medical school. But I really loved uh, soccer, and so they couldn't give a scholarship because it's Division three. so I got a work-study job with my soccer coach, hmm. okay? And he worked in the development office. And at, at the time, the University of Rochester had one of the largest endowments in the country. Mm. Top 10. And he handled the database for donors. And our job was to create mailing labels. Sounds pretty simple, right? But they would give us the logic they wanted. We need all the people that graduated in 1968, biology major, maybe played basketball for a targeted campaign. So he taught me how to code, MS-DOS at the time. So I would run and create very simple codes in the, off this database to, to get to do a database query and get results. And I, I just thought, oh, this this kind of made sense to the way my my brain thinks. I, I, I tease with people now. To me, the whole world is a database. I mean, at least kind of start organizing things on how I'd want to re retrieve them. Hmm. So it, from there, that's where I learned all my my coding skills. So I never took formal classes per se. And then someone said the, the way, the fancy way to say that is autodidactic mm. instead of self-taught. So I, I go on to medical school, go on to residency. And in residency, I was in the intensive care unit, neonatal intensive care unit, and where these very small babies are born and, and remain there for days, maybe sometimes months, and are growing by a few grams every day. And you make minor adjustments every day you have to be very thorough in your notes. And I thought, wow, this is perfect for a database. Hmm. So we're 1990 now. And so I, I put some information into a database. I do my note on a computer. I print it out on the required paper and everything. And wow, it caused a, a firestorm in the intensive care unit. The head of the intensive care unit came up to me and said, um, did you do your note on a computer? And he said, I did. She goes, stop it. You're upsetting the nurses. Hmm. We, we handwrite our notes. So when I say that's like where my journey came from, and then they asked me to be chief resident, and I said only if I could have a computer, and their answer was, what would you need a computer for? Give this right? girl a computer. I mean, come on. You're like, what, what would you like? What would you even do with it? Like, we'll give you one, but who needs a computer? <laughs> so, hey, but hey, I got a little bit of a reputation for if you want to talk about computers and medicine, you're go, that person. <laughs> you're trying to go 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 to Ellie Lovey's and. Um, I still went out into private practice in, in pediatrics. It was fascinated by technology, and I wanted my own office where I, I used an electronic health record. And again, unheard of at the time, but I eventually was able to do that. And it started just, a, it was a really essentially a one and a half doc office. We had two, two of us working part time. And we got some national attention from HIMSS and won the HIMSS Davies Award. Because it was unheard of, a two-doc office at the time would get an electronic health record. And we also 
when I say we, I, I worked with some IT professionals and myself, we wrote code to get the first HL7 message from a local lab into an electronic health record. When was this? So now we're in 2005. Okay. Wow. 2005, that range. So we win the Hims Davies Award and that, that puts you on the national scene. And I'm chuckling, my very first consultant uh, gig was with Eastman Kodak because they were looking to buy an electronic health record. And Kodak also sponsored the Rochester Regional Health Information Organization, the formation of that and getting that going. So I worked on that, that formation team. I was the first vice chair, the board of directors, knowing that I already had exchange happening in my office, that the promise of as soon as my patients went to the lab, I had their lab results within five minutes of them being available. They were already in the patient's chart. It's just, it, it was great. So I love the electronic health record. I love the health information exchange. It's still one of the most successful in the country. And in that, knowing that I was going to be on the national scene, I was compulsive and remain that way about privacy and security. Because the last thing you want to do is be out there talking about it and have someone go, oh, we're going to try and hack you. Hmm. So, uh, Especially I mean, now. I mean, we can get into that in more detail, well, too. Even, even then, in any... Any client I eventually worked with, so we eventually, I, I went on to lead for the medical society. They had this, we call it the service bureau to help physicians with adopting electronic health record technology and connecting to the, to the Rio. And this predated meaningful use. It, but the service bureau went on to be the forerunner of what were regional extension centers, a place where physicians could come from unbiased information to help use technology. And then we have quite a few practices with meet meaningful use, probably over a thousand positions. So the projects just kept getting bigger and bigger. Now the whole time I continued to practice. So I had one floor of my office was where I practiced and then the other floor is my consulting space. And that, that led to some real credibility. And I try to keep it uh, to, to this day. I say you're more credible when you've actually done something or used something when you're speaking about it. So That's I try so to get hands on experience as much as possible. I think that's woven in. So privacy and security are just have been woven into my DNA with using technology and then trying to be very practical with realistic hands-on experience. Do you think a lot of medical practitioners are interested in technology in the way you are, or are you a rare candy here? There, there's a significant, it's now a recognized medical subspecialty. So I was in the inaugural class when you said board certified in clinical informatics. Think about that. That wasn't even recognized until 2014. Now, now that's not that long ago. True. Right? So there, there's a subset that are, we get into the whole issue with technology. I, if you asked a physician, do they want to go back to paper records, the answer would be no. However, there's something that electronic health records has unleashed a little bit of an administrative beast of burden on physicians and they attribute that for high burnout rate. Right. So, and it's understandable, totally understandable. If you look under the hood, why it, it makes sense why it is. So they have a love hate relationship with technology. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Let's fast forward a little bit into kind of like the present day or uh, recent day. I know yeah. actually, your current position at Consensus Health is you know, relatively, really new. You used to be at 
Ernest and Young. So right, do you right. want to talk a little bit about what you did there? Oh, what a, what a great place. I mean, I was, I was just really fortunate because uh, Ernest and Young, I, I don't know if you just saw the latest analyst report, one of the top ones in the, in the world for enterprise blockchain. And it just, I, I, I came to lead digital health, government and public sector, took on the role of leading US healthcare blockchain. And, and I remember someone asking going, what experience do you have on blockchain? I said, who has experience in blockchain? I just haven't been around that long. I mean, if you're gonna go out and say, oh, I'm experienced in blockchain. I said, but I am experienced in emerging technology. Yeah. I, you know, I am experienced where Right, going from paper to electronic. I, I I sat in board meetings where one of the other board members looked at me and said, "Physicians will never use computers." So I'm I'm it's it's really about the change management. It's less and less about the technology. So here I am at, at Ernst and Young anyway, and I'm learning from these fabulous leaders. So Pearl Brody, Chen Zer, Jamie Canterbury, uh, and Andy Beal, Tom Eibold. These are people I worked with that I literally would they would sit down and they would teach me. And I would have to say it back until I got it inside and out. So it was this wonderful, again, on the job learning, very practical, asking the tough questions and then combining the healthcare expertise of, well, this is how healthcare organizations work. And this is where it might provide the most value in a healthcare organization. Hmm. So were you working with clients like can you explain like what was your other sure. than like educating people what was your role how did you yeah so uh, most often the, the account teams would say hey are, we have a client who's interested in talking about blockchain or interested in blockchain and healthcare so that might not necessarily be a healthcare system it could be a logistics operator hmm. they came in and they say oh, we want to do healthcare logistics and where does blockchain fit into that? So I was doing three cities a week. I was probably the happiest person to go into quarantine because I'm like, three cities a week is tough. But that's how how much interest there was out there. I was in front of 180 clients in 18 months at Ernst & Young. Uh, wow. Just talking about and, and doing the and blockchain. And, that's yeah. impressive. That's a tough, tough gig, though, always traveling. And now you're at home. You're stuck at home no, pretty much. No. And how do you think COVID-19 has affected the healthcare industry, specifically like public trust in data? Because I feel like that has been become eroded, um, yeah, at least in the last few months. Or maybe that's just maybe that, one that's perspective. A, a little bit of, that's a little bit of a, a tough question. I, I think we're rapidly learning. And I think what would surprise most people about medicine and surprised me when I was in medical school and, and, and practicing. We think there's an exact answer mm, for every issue. I come to the doctor, here's the answer. This is the problem, here's the answer, and it's crystal clear. And it really isn't. Mm -hmm. It really isn't crystal clear. More often than you would, would think, it's not crystal clear. And remember, medicine is an art. And we go back to that. And so how we take data of what we know about the disease, but then what do I know about the person? What do I know about what I recommend that's going to work for you? Because if I recommend something you don't agree with and it doesn't make sense, it will not work. Even if all the evidence-based medicine says it works, if you don't want to use it, and it doesn't, then it doesn't work for you. So there's definitely an art to medicine. So I, I think what you're seeing right now 
with COVID is this rapidly evolving, we're learning. Mm -hmm. And that surprised the public. They're like, what do you mean you you don't know? What do you, you said this six, two months ago, and now you're saying this. And because they're seeing that we're gathering data and learning. And does that cause distrust or maybe, but maybe it's reality that this is what happens with many illnesses. I mean, I, I can, and usually it's not happening at this pace. I think that's the issue. Right. That's a really good point. Yeah. What I learned about how to treat asthma when I was a resident looks nothing like how we treat asthma now. And in 10 and, years, it might look completely different as well. And I feel the same way about mental health now as well. The way we treat mental health, I think, is going to completely change in the next. I mean, it's changing now, but in the next 10, 15 years, even 30 years, who, who knows? I, hope, I, hope, I really do. I hope so. That would be. That, because we still have so much more to learn and it doesn't mean anyone was being dishonest uh, when we knew what we there's that what does Maya Angelou say you know you did what you knew how to do and when you knew better you did better right we're, we're, mm -hmm. people are, are out there working hard I mean no one can fault healthcare workers on the front line I mean they're really putting their lives on the line out there and doing their very best yeah I agree um Let's talk about your role at Consensus Health. How do you, what is, what do you think is your role at Consensus Health? As opposed to what, what the, my CEO thinks? Or what does, what, what does no, Heather think? Yeah, I had Heather on the show too, so. I, I, I know, I hope, I, well, we're really in agreement. And what I've loved about Heather is, as I was talking about moving over to Consensus Health and, and talking about what my role would be, she really got to it. She said, in healthcare, what are you passionate about? That's what she started with. She didn't say we needed this, this kind of, these are the roles we need. She said to me, what are you passionate about? I said, privacy. Mm. She goes, there you go. So she likes to match people with what they're passionate about. And mm. so that that's how we came to decide on the, the chief privacy roles. And they weren't looking to fill it per se. Some of it I think is redundant because privacy is built into everything we do. But again, I've paid extra attention to that, to privacy my, my whole career. I, I've actually read HIPAA security privacy rule, the privacy rule and the security rule and amendments. And yeah, you, you can see me quote them. I mean, Vizios. I mean, I really, I, we want to do it well. We want to do it well. And then the North America markets, as I said, I, w I was going all over the country. He had 180 clients, uh, clients U.S., Canada, uh, not, not Mexico per se, but we'll, we'll take on that role. But it, it's continuing to expand on that and in, and in collaboration with Ernst & Young. A consensus Ernst & Young and Microsoft, of course, work together to develop code and donate it, uh, put it make it open source. So, or donate, I'm sorry, to make it to put it in the public domain. So it's still a highly collaborative environment. Okay. When did you first hear about blockchain technology? Yeah, probably the, the, the smatterings of this Bitcoin thing was when we all first heard about it and a little bit of that craze. And when I really learned about it, though, was coming to Ernst & Young. As I said, okay. really getting the tutelage there, reading about the capabilities of Ernst & Young when I first got there, I said, wow, they're really, they're a leader in blockchain. They really are. And the rest we just learned from there as they dug in and learned from the people that are doing some of the cutting edge work in blockchain.
Got it. So like 2017 during the craze, 2018-ish time frame. Right. Right. And then I'm just digging in and I continue to dig in. And and sometimes when you're born and raised a certain way, I said, remember, I was thinking of being born and raised at Ernst & Young and Ethereum and public public blockchains as opposed to private and then and that that whole theory so when you're when you're raised that way sometimes you got to leave the nest a little bit and get exposed to more points of view and thinking so i'm already getting additional and tremendous expanding points of view by many of the leaders at ernst and young i mean i'm sorry a consensus they blow me away yeah there's definitely there's no shortage of opinions and points of view in this industry absolutely right. not. yeah right. and that's good i think that's really important especially now when we're still figuring it out every blockchain i think is still an experiment i think bitcoin is the most successful experiment at this time mm-hmm. uh, and followed by ethereum but still yeah. like still is an experiment i would say but um how it's gonna you know, unfold into society is still unknown. I think, I think we have ideas and people are working on different projects right. to, to bring it to the people, but we don't really know like EMRs, you know, we would think patient portals are going to be adopted so quickly, but who's using patient portals? Well, I did today. Does that count? That's great. I think you're, <laughs> that's, that's great that you did, but I think you're in the small in the minority. minority. In the, in the minority but... It's getting better though. I will say. I can tell you why like, I, there's some theories why on, on that it bleeds over again into everything I I do if you look at why technology is adopted or not adopted and I, and I think we were going to talk about how do you blend healthcare and technology and it, at the end of the day why are the EHRs why are doctors miserable with EHRs because they weren't built with the end user in mind hmm. they did not have enough this is how the person wants to interact with it. Weren't it's, they built? Here's the system that you have to interact with. Right. Wasn't it really uh, built to help with billing? Wasn't that the original well, intention? I started using electronic health records. It wasn't. I mean, I loved my electronic health record too. Software, uh, very intuitive. I could do great things with it. And then people got excited. And we went well-intentioned, but they got excited about, wow, there's a lot of data in these electronic health records. And if we can harness this data, then we're, we're going to pull a lot of this data out. And we're going to be, oh, we're going to be so much smarter. Well, to get data out of an electronic health record, it has to be put in in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And what happened is they started adding requirement after requirement after requirement of how you had to put in data in a structured way, which ended up being a lot of clicks, a lot of scrolls. And the people developing the technology were like, we can do this in five clicks, but I have to do 10 things in every visit. So now they each to only five clicks, but I do that when you're seeing 40 patients a day. I mean, people were going home and they still are. They go home at night to just to finish their charts, to get all the clicks, to get all the required data that people want out of them. So they started leaning on them more heavily, not just for billing, but for quality reporting, look at meaningful use you have to be able to do quality reporting out of it for meaningful use you had to get everyone's smoking status and racing yeah everything everything had to be done in just a very specific way and so they became more burdensome in in that way Hmm. how is blockchain adoption and awareness in healthcare developing in the u.s now 
Well, I think I think the 180 clients is testament to people are hungry, hungry for it. They really are. That they they want to talk about this. They want to they want to adopt it. They're looking at it. They the numbers that are growing in either in consortia or more private conversations. Mm-hmm. It, it just continues. There's no there's no shortage of people interested in it and wanting to move it forward. Yeah, very different from the landscape just even like three years ago, I think. Yeah, even two years ago. Two years ago, yeah. Even two years ago. It, that's how fast it's, it's changing. What are the biggest misconceptions of blockchain when you speak with various healthcare executives? So I, I think the biggest one, and this is uh, internal and external, is that if I come in with a blockchain enabled, and I'm going to use the word blockchain enabled, because blockchain doesn't really exist by itself, it isn't that useful unless you start putting apps on top of it or you're doing something with the data you get out of it. So a blockchain-enabled system, the biggest misconception or fear they have is they're like, oh, my God, we just put in a system. We do not want to rip and replace and put in a whole new system. And so whereas you can use blockchain technology to actually harness some of the, the rich data you have in your current system and get transparency, not to an entire system of someone else in your ecosystem, but outside of your ecosystem, would you benefit from having some transparency of their data as well? And that's not asking everybody to go on the exact same system. It's not saying you get to keep your system and your neighbor gets to keep their system, but the two of you are going to be able to share the data that's relevant for you two to share. So that's probably the biggest misconception. We're past, at least the executives I was I, I was sitting down in front of, they were past Bitcoin equals blockchain. They were past that. Okay. So it really became, am I going to have to rip and replace my entire system? Are they? Are they going to have to rip and replace their entire system? No, you interface with their existing ERP. So one of the great use cases in healthcare supply chain and really it's coming to the forefront with the vaccines. If we're going to talk about rapidly manufacturing and deploying a COVID vaccine, let's say that comes to fruition. Well, it's not just the doctor's offices delivering the vaccine. It's the plant that manufactures it. It's the truck or ship or airplane it goes on being kept at an exact temperature, uh, maybe going to a wholesale distributor then arriving at a health system, then getting shipped out to, to clinics. There, there's so many steps in that supply chain. Right? I can't have a single system that they're all going to agree to use. Because if we had to build that, that would, mm. and we couldn't, right? That would take years. Yeah. But if I can enter, if I can grab the relevant information I need from each one of those systems to pass that asset along the supply chain and keep track of it, that's the beauty of blockchain. That's just one use case as an example. So you do not have to rip and replace your system. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Recently, the United States Health and Human Services announced its blockchain platform called HHS Protect to collect and share COVID-19 hospitalization data. HHS Chief Information Officer Jose Arrieta has been leading efforts at HHS to use blockchain to secure, validate, and share procurement data for a few years now. 
I first saw Jose present in Nashville in 2018, but this is the first big official announcement from the HHS touting the use of blockchain. Arietta had previously noted back in January 2020 that the HHS Accelerate program focused on using the technology to streamline and improve the procurement process will save HHS somewhere around $33 to $40 million over the next five years. However, HHS Protect was an opportunity to use the technology for its true purpose, he says. The core for this technology is around sharing and transparency, using hashes and time series, and being able to share the data with the integrity to allow the American public to ensure the underlying data is accurate. He also said the blockchain HHS uses is not the blockchain of anarchists and disruptors, but rather as a fresh step forward where thousands of users on the platform are accessing datasets. According to the CIO, HHS Protect coordinates data from 6,200 hospitals across the United States, including numbers of ventilators, hospital beds, ER admittance and discharge, lab test data across the United States, warehouse implications, and nursing home data. I'm personally super excited about this announcement, and I do hope it makes it easier for other government institutions to feel more comfortable with blockchain technology. I'm hoping to get Jose on the show so we can explore more details about the HHS Protect platform. What do you all think? I'd love to get your feedback on the Telegram group chat. And now let's get back to the show with Dr. Ali Lovies, Chief Privacy Officer at Consensus Health. How important is community governance when developing a decentralized ledger technology solution? Well, when we talk about governance, there's there's a couple different ways to think about this. So private consortias, it's all about governance. And that's the, the down to the technology you're going to use, the use case that's going to get priority, the money you have to pay to develop your first use case, your second, your third use case. And ironically, that the bigger these consortias get, eventually you have to centralize your government and it, it defeats the purpose of decentralization. So again, you're going to hear a little bit of my bias about what would like to see the future more towards the public blockchain, where I don't have to join. Let me about email. Mm-hmm. You know, you get email on Acme email and, and I get it on widget email. We can both send emails to each other. I didn't have to join the Acme email group in in order to exchange information. So it's when you have protocols that allow us to move information safely and still privately, leveraging the public mainnet, that you'll see the explosion in blockchain adoption. Because we would get these questions from clients. Which consortia should I join? Hmm. or, Or... can we be the consortium? We want to own, and then they would say, we want to own the blockchain. I'm like, no one owns the blockchain yeah. <laughs> more than anyone owns the internet. But it's similar to what happened historically with the internet, that there were companies that were competing to be the way we interacted with the internet. Which browser was going to win? Right, you got Juno, some, AOL, all these things. Right. Some sites would only open on Internet Explorer, and they, well, you keep going through them. Mozilla and Firefox and mm-hmm. so now you can open up you can use any browser pretty much to open up any site so I, I see that same way that we're gonna you're gonna see things going more and more to leveraging the public infrastructure now uh, 
am I biased? Probably. I'm going to admit that. I'm willing to say maybe I'm a little biased there and I need to spend more time in depth. One of my mentors pointed that out because I wrote a paper, a white paper on the value of blockchain and healthcare and Lovett asked him for his honest opinion. He said, you need to be able to, to get state the other side for private blockchains just as eloquently hmm. as you could for a public blockchain. Because private blockchains are what's here in front of are here in front of us right now. Interesting feedback. Well, I mean, I got to say, your bias is probably coming from over 30 years of experience talking about similar issues. So and this is what I said to him. I said, it actually isn't about public or private blockchain. Mm-hmm. It's about let's take data and data information. So again, huge fan, totally biased because it's like when you raise the baby. But the Rochester Regional Health Information Organization, it covers over 1.3 million lives at least. So when people talk about Estonia, I go, same size. Rochester, New York, surrounding communities, same size population as Estonia. So they go, oh, Estonia did it. I said, all right, same thing. We've included every hospital, lab, radiology in the region and more. And it's just continuing to grow the amount of information that's going into that system. It's fantastic. But it's still a silo. Hmm. It's a bigger silo. Because if I go down to Florida and I get in an accident and I want to hit the Rio, that's not easily done. I'm not saying it's impossible. No, the Rios are coming together. But... We thought by now that there would be a national health information network. That's what everyone was going for in 2005 and 2006. That was all the buzz. And here we are in 2020 and we still don't have it. Yeah. I feel like every state has a bunch for their own. So maybe, maybe some states too, some states don't. That's the other thing we looked at because I've had clients to say, well, why don't we just use the health information exchanges? So how many states are you in? They'll tell me and I say, oh, these four states don't even have a health information network. Also, the incentives aren't aligned with those health information exchanges. I think the one unique thing about blockchain is you can build incentives within the governance so that people want to share data and it'll be a place where they can all come together and, you know, um, grab the data that they need. Very simply said. (laughs) let 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 me share something that I learned very recently from Alex Kahana. And consensus because we really got talking about incentive and I talk about value and if you look at a governance structure and say we're going to agree on the value this blockchain is providing mm-hmm. not really because if I'm a logistics provider and you're a healthcare provider our values really aren't going to come to what we value most about why we're using blockchain or they're not going to be the same because we're not the same. Right, but you can form some sort of market so all the logistics, um, the buyers, I guess, logistics company buyers that are buying that data, let's say, they're all going to come to a certain like meta price or something. So you'll build this sort of marketplace. Well, so if I build this marketplace that we come to a price, that is, and what do the wholesalers think about that? Right. I mean, we'd have to like, go into right? So you've got to be careful because this is an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so in this ecosystem, and the way, that's what people are always worried about. Am I going to get disrupted by blockchain, disruptive technology? No, I, I, I think we're still going to always operate in ecosystems in business and healthcare. Business, no, no one business can do it all. I mean, maybe Amazon thinks they can. No, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, 
they still it, it's still going to be collaborative ecosystems and business to business transactions are here here to stay and and I'm not saying again and we have to think it through and think it all the way through uh, in the ecosystem all the members of the ecosystem can we provide a value it may not be the same value for each person each organization but that's what we have to think about and I think that's what it Alex expanded my thinking on value as opposed to we're going to get a governance model where everyone agrees what the value is. Instead, we're going to say there's value for all of us here. It might be different, but how do we support the value for each person without decimating one person or one organization in the ecosystem? Interesting. That makes sense. By the way, for my audience, I did interview Alex Kahana, oh gosh, maybe a year ago. So check out that episode. Uh, so let's get into privacy. That's your specialty. So why should, why should people care about their data privacy? Some people don't. And I've, I've been on panels where I've had the audience say, I want all my information out there and used and shared. And that's what I want. And if there's a public electronic health record that all of our data is in, so be it. Well, I feel like we might end up going that direction. I mean, if you think about it, let's just, I mean, now that blockchain's into play, maybe not, but I think if there wasn't blockchain, I think that would have happened. Because if you look at Facebook or Instagram or any of these social media platforms, no one even dreamed about sharing their family photos every day to the world. That wasn't a thing you thought about, sharing your photo albums to the world. But then it became second nature. And then look at Venmo. People are sharing every transaction they're making with friends. So... Maybe their health data is next. Right, maybe. And maybe. And and you could you could be right. And I think there are plenty of people that will not ever use Venmo or won't use Facebook. That's the but the point of privacy, and the way I think about privacy, yeah. is it's your choice. It's your choice. I right what I personally want to do with privacy may not be what you personally want to do, it might not be what Sally next door wants to do. It's your right. It's your actual right. You should have the right to your. You have the right to yourself. your privacy, or yeah. if you don't want it to be private, it's still your right to do that. Yeah. You're good. That's good too, because sometimes we've swung in the other direction. Where um, we've swung in the other direction, where we're saying uh, we're not going to share information, and we oh, HIPAA won't allow us to share information, and and there was nothing in HIPAA that wouldn't allow you to share information. No, because people poorly understood it and they didn't want to make the mistake. And I, they erred on the conservative side of not sharing information, even when requested, that we got a little paternalistic about healthcare data being, being private or not, right? And so CMS had to go the other direction and they actually had to make regulations about information blocking. Hmm. We can't block this information. The other side of the coin. It was the other side of, of privacy that, and I don't. Having lived in it and helped people through with implementing HIPAA, I I would defend practices that had HIPAA violations and help get corrective action going for them. It's very. It, it's not easy. It's some messy. of it's very. Some of it's very practical, but it's not easy to totally understand. So when someone at the front desk is answering the phone and someone says, can you please send this information over there? They don't want to get in trouble. And so they're like, right. hold on. 
So I get I get how that's happening. So if we can find ways that make it better for people, the person, the, the, the patient, the consumer, however you want to call it, to control who they share their data with and for what purpose. That's the other thing. For what purpose? And for how for long? For how long? Um, with, and, and, and have some clarity on that. Instead of you come in and you say, now, have you gone to the doctor's office recently? Actually, not recently, but... Um, oh, you, it, it is, you want to keep that private and don't want to share. You don't have to. Yeah, I mean, not recently, though. I haven't really but, gone anywhere recently. <laughs> asked my audience, have you been recently? Did you sign anything that said HIPAA on it? Yeah. What did you sign? Yeah, no, it's a, I have no idea if it's... Yeah, I'm but sure I signed it, things. Right? Yeah, yeah. You signed it, and you have no idea. And really, what you signed was their HIPAA policies. You didn't agree to share your information anywhere, kind of. But you got... And you, you signed an acknowledgement that you could read their HIPAA privacy policies if you wanted to. Right. And if I wanted to share that information with my PCP, for example, I'd have to sign another form acknowledging That's right. Right, That's right. consent to share. To share. Right. And so it's not really, it's, it's clear as mud mm-hmm. to people. And then if you did share it with that doctor, did you really share it for how long? Right. Exactly. And then downstream is that data going into some company that's analyzing the data and then that's downstream right. of that or is it sending it to an ai yeah data lake somewhere right and i think what's okay. happening is people in the moment that they're signing this document they just want to feel better so they're either sick or they're not in the condition to really think Absolutely. about it because they can't get the care until they sign it so they really don't have a choice at the of the matter which isn't true all right so here here's a misnomer okay that's not me. true it feels that way. That's it. That's, it's, it's, it does. And that's and it does because if you go to get an app and they say signed that the, you've acknowledged the terms and conditions and if you say don't agree, you don't get to use the app. It's an all or none. It's my way or the highway. And you're at, you're at that. So I think people are used to that. You can walk in and say I'm not going to sign that. HIPAA acknowledgement. They still have to treat you. Hmm. I didn't know that. There you go. But you really just, all you're signing is saying, acknowledging that you had the the policy. You didn't agree to the policy. That's not what you're signing. I agree with the policy. You're just saying, I was able to look at the policy. They can't stop treating you based on that. So you actually don't have to sign it. And they still have to treat you. So those are some of the things. But shouldn't it be more clear of what we're signing and why we're signing it? Absolutely. And by signing, I didn't agree. It just some of these are. It just really restates the laws and regulation. I don't need your consent. For example, if I'm for treatment, payment, and operations, I don't even need your consent. There's a myriad of regulations in which I don't even need your consent. But shouldn't that be clear to the consumer, so they don't so. get upset that it, for for quality reviewing records for quality purposes, I don't need your consent to look at that so there are a lot of people that can have eyes on your data for various reasons of which we, i don't even need your consent and you're signing and saying okay maybe this was kind of i had the opportunity to to review this yeah i think when these emrs and systems were getting built i don't think patient consent and privacy was top priority and i feel sure. like now it's a mission for these blockchain healthcare companies to try to figure out how to integrate with these existing systems so that right. they can 
provide those uh, consent. Right, because you had the HIPAA privacy rule predated the HIPAA security rule, right, which came out much later. Remember when I was first winning those awards and doing the exchanges? That's when the security rules came out, hmm. how you have to do this. iPhones weren't around then. So how do you, how do you write for technology that doesn't even exist yet? And this is why HIPAA leans very heavily on National Institute for Technology and Standards. Standards and Technology, I'm sorry, NIST. So that's why they lean very heavily and you'll get references into that. So it can be applicable even 10 years from now because it's refer, you keep going back to, well, what does NIST say? What does NIST say? And NIST keeps current with the most, the technology. They have statements about blockchain in there, for example. Interesting. Well, what about in, during the pandemic? I feel like there is a benefit to having people share, patients share their data to right. agencies or, you know, the public or whatever, research organizations. So there is that benefit, but there is no way to specifically allow those institutions to access the data. So well, how yes does no. blockchain... So, yeah. so, so let me tell you that public health, for public health, mm -hmm. I don't need your consent to share your data for a public health emergency. Hmm. Okay. Right. So if, if you show up at the hospital and you're COVID positive, that is reported to the Department of Health required. Don't need your consent to do it. Going to happen. You'll get a call from the Department of Health. You'll, they're trying to track and. How do you feel about that? Because in a way it's invading someone's privacy, but in a way it's also important for our social. Probably they can't do that. So there are all these standards and I could bore you again with the paper. <laughs> papers written about what questions do I get to ask? What do I get to share uh, for the benefit of public health? Right. And so this has to fall under public. It has to meet that burden of proof or it would have been smacked down in the courts immediately. So it, it, this is we are in a public health emergency. And so there's certain data sharing. Now, does that mean I get to do contact con, uh, contact tracing? view your cell phone and you're not aware of it? Do I get to do that? Is the government privy to that information? Just because I'm COVID positive, this is where the pushback has come. And again, Congress getting involved, looking going like, we gotta be really careful because if I open up that I can do contact tracing, meaning I know anywhere you went, and I'm saying I'm doing that for the purposes of COVID. When COVID's over, do I stop tracing you? Or do I still know everywhere you go? Right. How do, I, how do I know it gets turned off? So it's those kind of, of issues that are ahead of us. So when we're designing solutions right now, we don't design it for, uh, not necessarily, from the orga for an organization. We design it from the perspective of you, you the individual, you the citizen. If you want to contribute your data, that's great. When you're done contributing your data, you get to turn that off too. Mm -hmm. It's not like, well, I gave it away. Now that I gave it away, they can continue to do it. No. And the, who has the power to turn that on and off? Has, it has to re remain with the individual. Right. And I think it's interesting to think about how other countries are dealing with this. Because if you look at a country like China, um, that gray area between public safety and private rights, privacy rights, you know, they're all about social, um, th they're going to lead, lean towards the public safety side of things. I am, um, I, 
one of the most important things to know is what you don't know. And I would be very far afield if I said that I could speak to China and China policy extremely well. So I'm going to defer opinions there. I, I think that in, in some countries, they have more access to your location and your communications than perhaps in the United States. I think the United States and the European Union really value privacy. And I, I can speak to there. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to be careful about what I can say about other countries because I really don't know. Yeah, you know, I respect that. That's, that's totally fine. It's okay that I don't know. But if I started saying, oh, yeah, China does this or that, I don't, I don't know. You know, I'm glad you answered that. I asked one of the experts and said, teach me. And did I get it right and, and quiz it back? So I'm going to defer there. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. And I think, you know, thanks for that um, transparency. Because I also am just working with what I hear on the news and stuff and some journals. But it's not like for sure. I don't know it for a fact. So yeah, have I, sat, have I sat down and been thoughtful about it and talked to people that really know. So I understand. The, I, so so where you'll see me most be most comfortable the Canadian regulations and U.S. regulations look very similar, and certainly GDPR has influenced how we even think about privacy in the United States because most, again, clients we're working with don't just exist within the United States. They're global global clients, and even individual states. So California came out with the California Consumer Protection Law. So another big, big, big thing I have to deal with HIPAA all the time is people will be like, we built a HIPAA compliant app. And I'm like, that we can handle healthcare and we're HIPAA compliant. And it's like, okay, but HIPAA doesn't apply to you. And you're like, huh? And I'm like, you're not a covered entity as defined. And again, if you want to get kiki, I can bring it right to the definition of what a covered entity is within HIPAA. So don't tell me you're HIPAA compliant because it doesn't apply to you. All healthcare data is not covered under HIPAA. All covered entities are. So when you take a, another organization, a consumer-facing app that wants to get your healthcare data, that's covered under consumer protection laws, which sometimes can be even more strict. Hmm. Look what California rolled out, for example. So our job is not just to know HIPAA; it's to know consumer protection laws as well and GDPR. So I'm very comfortable talking about that within the United within North America. Can you describe covered entities in more detail, actually, if you could? It's pretty straightforward. It's do you bill Medicare, Medicaid for medical services? Mm. Well, right? I see and the point of that. It, yeah. yeah, they extended that to are you or are you a business associate that handles that information on behalf of an entity that's billing Medicare or Medicaid? Right, and if so you are a business associate, you would have to um, have a sign an agreement yeah. to keep that yep. private. Is that the letter? The letter of it? Um, no, I, I could read you the the letter of it, but it's it's actually pretty narrow. Okay. Pretty narrow, but afterwards I'll I'll send you the clip. How's that? Sure, um, I'd love to I'll, see it. I'll, Thank I'll, you. I'll, I'll I'll show you my Vizio and I'll show you how when someone says covered entity, because where we get into trouble with HIPAA is how people interpret it as opposed to what it says. Do you think there are any plans on amending HIPAA or? What's the idea there? Are we going to go GDPR? Like, what are we going to adopt as a new? Absolutely, there's talk about amending HIPAA because I think people would probably feel more comfortable if all healthcare data were handled and held under the same standards as HIPAA. So, 
just because you are a commercial entity doesn't mean you can be any less careful with my data. And if there's a breach that you would face similar fines and penalties. So I, I, I think that we'll see that. Well, I want to live in a world where I don't even have to worry about a company losing my data or possibly looking at my data without my knowledge. I want to live in the web 3.0 world where anytime someone does access my data, mm-hmm. I would get an alert. I would know about it because it's on a you know public blockchain or That's some possible. sort of decentralized yeah. system. That's possible. And that is possible. Yeah. And, and those are those are the very real, again, it gives you the freedom. Some people yep. don't want the notification. They don't care. Some people do. So it's the choice. And that, and that's what we're trying to, to work, to make sure that it's your choice. Mm-hmm. Oh, tough question. When do you think that'll happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to see, and we certainly have already done the wireframe models for how you would provide choice. And we have seen models. Again, I would have to send you some links afterwards where we have started to see a consumer-driven consent model that's more granular than than just signing the generic, share all this information with this person. And we actually have some blockchain uh, companies that they don't gather the consent, but once they do, and I always I always give them a shout out because I I really like the people there. Like First IQ, they're 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 mm-hmm. wonderful. But once they get the consent, that they can create uh, metadata tags. They say this is this data to be used for this purpose. So we're already starting to see that in pilots, and hopefully we'll see that more in production and more at scale. Where and, and eventually, if it's possible, can it become the standard? That would be fantastic. Uh, remember that technology isn't linear how it gets adopted it's that hockey stick right it's a it's a very much that that hockey stick um that exponential organization that it's a great read if you hadn't read it and the, the leader of government public sector recommended mike harrington recommended that we all read that exponential organization and i i took him up on it and, and read that and it does talk about so when is it going to happen it's not going to be obvious that it's happening and then it looks like it's just exploded onto the scene. And really, it's been doubling. But going from 1 to 2, 2 to 4, 48, et cetera, you know what I'm talking about. Right. Also, it doesn't feel obvious until you go from 16 to 32. Right. Yeah, I mean, looking forward to those times. I think definitely in, in our lifetime, I I would say, because, um, you know, this is not going to be 20 years out. It's more like, you know, 3 to 5, I would say, or 5 right. to 10. Right. Let's talk a little bit about AI because we talked about a lot of pain points that providers have in the industry and even patients. And there are lots of companies working on AI solutions for, you know, patient data management and uh, just analytics and public health information. But there's going to be a lot of decisions that we need to make about how to, you know, make AI ethical or socially responsible. What um, what are your thoughts behind that? Can you be more specific when you say ethical? I, I mean, I have some idea, but I don't want to assume. Yeah, what... well, I mean, one of the major problems now is a lot of the AI algorithms are, you know, taking in data that are coming from a certain population. Maybe they're not including um, economically, you know, disenfranchised populations or something, 
or mm-hmm. it's certainly biased in certain ways. So how are we going to make sure that we live in a world where we're not, you know, catering to a certain group or a population? And maybe that's too vague of a question, but no, it's, no, it's no, it's very fair. I just wanted to, cause that's, that's how I thought. I, I want to make sure I understood it. So if you look at an AI company mm-hmm. and they, they should have a chief ethics mm-hmm. officer. Consensus that's health because, does. You're right. We do. We have a very good one, but yeah, but, but we, he was we on my a, show too. <laughs> he was too. There you go. There's, mm-hmm. you shout. And, anyway, shout right. So if you look at people are, aware it's artificial intelligence because who who fed the information what was human beings and we have to know what we're feeding so you are speaking to that larger and we're we're, it's another thing i would have to say i was exquisitely sensitive to so again when heather asked me about what are you passionate about i i said the word foundation has to appear in my title because if we're not doing this for the greater good of all Mm. we're, we're missing the mark we don't want to create that digital divide. Right. We want to make sure there's fair representation. Now, it's not always because people are biased. It's because that's all the information they have available in front of them to build this algorithm on. Right. I'm not blaming the, the, answer, the developers of AI oh, or anything. It's kind no. of just like, yeah. Right. But, but so sometimes it's, it's fair to look and say, is it ethical? How do we assure, because maybe sometimes we need to put it on pause, Hmm. right? We were offering uh, or doing a product development for something that relied heavily on a person having a smartphone. And I'm like, well, not everyone has a smartphone. I said, so how? And they're like, yeah, but 97% of the people in the population we were targeting do. Mm -hmm. And I go, that's great. And I said, but we can't roll this out until we make sure we assure for the 3% that don't. And we have to, that has to be built in from the beginning, like pause. We can't roll that out and leave them behind and say, we'll come back for you later. You have to put some of that up front. So I think with artificial intelligence, you have those chief ethic officers that are looking, is there bias in there? Or the other, can we move this algorithm? Do we have enough data to really do a meaningful algorithm? Or do we need to wait until we can get more data? So does that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. Let's talk about some industry partners that you are working with now. Sure. Without putting you under non-disclosure agreement, right? The one the one I think that's most exciting to right. announce, the, the public-private partnership with the Veterans Association. Hmm. And working with uh, the foundation. So we're working with multiple foundations. So there are, this, this, this blew me away. Do you know how many, serve, they're called service organizations, that provide benefits to veterans or want to help veterans. Do you know how many there are in the United States? Uh, 100, 200, 10,000. 45,000. Wow. And 45,000, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I mean, we are a nation that's patriotic. We like our veterans. We want to take care of them. We want to acknowledge their service. It's, it's people. I'm going to be a little cynical here. Is there any sort of uh, reason there are so many because maybe there are you know, they might be taking advantage of a system. There's just so many because there's so much money to be making there in that framework, the VA framework. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but. This isn't them getting, this isn't or service organizations getting money from the VA to provide services. These are like not-for-profits okay. of businesses that have come together. I was talking to 
uh, a former golf professional, well, still once you're a golf professional, you're always a golf professional, right? And he, he said, we have uh, foundations and partnerships that want to provide and uh, help fund treatment and services for veterans who, veterans that have traumatic brain injury. That's just mm -hmm. one example. So they're not getting money from the VA. No. Okay. They're going to donors. They're coming together. And they're saying, we have a million dollars. I'll make up numbers. We have a million dollars to spend. We want to help. I see. The how reason I asked. With, how yeah. do you connect me with a veteran who needs that help? Right? right. And there, there are uh, therapeutic horseback riding in our area. We have for veterans a therapeutic horseback riding program. Tremendous. Well, we're not going to put, that's not, getting on a horse is not for every veteran. Sure. There are a bunch of different ways to treat PTSD. So what we're looking for, it goes back to that individual. From the individual, you tell me, you know, where do you live? Where can we help you? And this is another Alex Kahana uh, teaching. He said, how do we help you on your path to well-being? You're a normal human being who was put in a situation that would cause trauma to any normal human being. We want you to come back, function in the United States to the best of your ability, given what you had to experience. And how do we help you on your greatest uh, potential and, and your path of well-being? And so everyone's going to be different places in their past. So we have to really personalize that. So this is what this is about. This is about matching in a very personal way for those veterans which one of those 45,000 service organizations will help them along their path of well-being that they choose is most important for them. Gotcha. Yeah, the reason for my question was um, I'm aware of there are also lots of EMT, small EMT companies all over the country, and there has been lots of reports of fraud where they are basically delivering patients to a dialysis center, for example, but charging so much money for it maybe like a you know a thousand dollars just to do a delivery and in, in one day and they do it multiple times a week yeah and so there are so many of these small companies and they last right. for like a few years they buy a couple trucks and they're basically doing this uber service because medicare is paying for it all so i just wanted to yes great point that is a great point and i think blockchain so that's separate from what we're proposing with the veterans but i love where you're going to because it's another great use for blockchain, if we get get transparency in the, the revenue cycle management, as it, as it's applied to these these entities, and when we can start to again get data that we trust, and then use artificial intelligence to look at, and is there an aberrancy here? There were during the COVID crisis, there was a lab in, in a state that was charging two thousand dollars for a COVID test. Why? Because they could. And they did. Did it last for long? I mean, it stood out because they were they they stood out. It made the news. Well, you'd like to be able to pick those up immediately and or stop that from even occurring, right? Mm -hmm. Have the changes shut that down. That charge with that, that's not going to go through. That doesn't meet all the criteria that it would go through. I'm not gotcha. saying that, I'm not saying that we have that product, but we're very interested in also the revenue cycle management side. And using the the trust and transparency and consensus mechanisms within blockchain and smart contracts, so this kind of fraud, waste, and abuse diminishes.
but but the partnerships we're looking at right now again for my relationship focusing on foundation relationships private public partnership with the VI is probably our most exciting product right now that we're doing and again it is to take the people they're not charging the veterans administration for it they're augmenting and, and, and the Veterans Administration has tremendous benefits for veterans due. Are the veterans, have every veteran signed up for those benefits? Are they, they might be eligible for benefits they didn't even know about. How do we get that? And just instead of handing them this big, thick packet, you read through and figure out what you're eligible for or not and how to sign up, we do a better job at matching. So that's what we're, we're focused on. It's not focused on drawing more money from, from the system. It. Right. Yeah. No, that's really cool. I like that. That makes sense now. Charge more to, to give. It's to to give in a way that's. And like you said, it's all about transparency. They want to help. Mm-hmm. They want to make sure. And quite honestly, if I give a hundred dollar donation to a veteran's service organization, I'd like to see that it was used in a way that really. That's why I donated the money. Let's see that it was used that way. I'd like that. I'm going to get a little bit personal here now. Oh, here we go. This is the uh, <laughs> Nah. Uh, you're going to love this. What do you believe in that most people would disagree with? I'm not. I don't think. I think you can tell I'm not that controversial. I, I, I think the, the biggest controversy I've ever caused at a conference is when I said meaningful use. If you looked at hospitals, and this was not my study. This was a great uh, PhD did the study that hospitals that met meaningful use had a lower morbidity and mortality rate in hospitals that didn't. Uh, I thought that you know, there were people coming out of their chairs because they're like, we hate electronic health records. It's meaningless. And when, and so that, that was probably as controversial as I've ever been. Um, and then on a more personal note, I have a fantastic group of, of friends that I hang out with and I'll say, I'm the least competitive of all of them. And they all disagree with that. They all disagree with that. <laughs> uh, if it's not too personal, what would you consider to be your biggest mistake? Uh, and I've been asked that question before and people have said, hey, if you could do it over again, mm. you got to do over. What are you going to do over? I, I like every mistake I've made. I, I've learned from it. I've, I, I, the missteps that happen sometimes um, have led me down a path that I might not have gone had that mistake not happened. Hey. Fair. Yeah, no, right? it, it pushes you down a different path and you're like, oh. I'm like, well, I, I guess that turned out to be a benefit. So I don't want to uh, do a do-over. I know there's lots of mistakes in my future, maybe in the next couple hours, but um, <laughs> you, you learn and adjust from them, and they're just part of life. So There you go. Yeah. Have you changed your mind on anything recently? Actually, you mentioned something in the interview that you've changed your mind on something recently. I think, I think that when we think about change and people changing their minds, and maybe this could be a controversial statement, I don't believe in epiphanies. Hmm. I don't believe you thought something yesterday and you woke up and you went, what? I can't believe I just realized. I don't even want to say the earth is round because I think that's controversial. But (laughs) right, I I think change and changing someone's mind, changing your own mind, it it happens gradually. It happens over time. And As more data like, comes in, you change your mind. Right. And you, maybe, maybe, who knows what influence, sometimes what influences it could be. I changed my mind because all of a sudden I realized I, I, it, it, it's more gradual. So when I, I say I've changed my mind, I think 
I've expanded my mind, even since moving this very short time I've spent at Consensus Health. We're again talking to people, getting outside of my comfort zone and, and questioning and spending a lot of time with them, questioning back what I might have believed about blockchain and what they're believing and, and going back and forth till I understand it. So I think we're seeing, and I hope it's an evolution. I hope. Mm-hmm. I hope. But that's how, how it changed. And I think that's how most change happens. It happens a little bit more gradually and it's more tolerable that way. But true epiphanies, the audience can let me know. Uh, they happen in Hollywood movies, but I haven't seen true epiphanies. If if you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it to be implanted? So that that's easy. I I went right to right my left hand. No, left hand is going to be left hand, and it's going to be we would call it medial, but to you it's the outside underneath my pinky, right? That nice little that nice little cushion there. Some doctors listen to this, so you could say it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So. I'm going to use, because I'm going to use that microchip. I know it. Sometimes I'm going to need entry into somewhere. It's going to be really easy. I'm just going to, boom, put that microchip up, and I'm going to be able to walk right in. Makes sense. Get on a plane. So I just wanted it somewhere that was easily accessible. And that's a, if, you, if you hold up your hand, and most people have a nice little cushion there. Yeah, it probably won't hurt either. It won't hurt. It won't yeah. stick out. I'll notice. It's very natural. Do you have a favorite book? I, lo- I like um, historical nonfiction. So if David McCullough writes it, I like it. John Adams is my favorite. And I read Alexander Hamilton by Chernow before I saw the show. And when I tell you 650 pages and it's a page turner, it was a great book. Hmm. So those those are the books that I, I really like. I really like. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. Well, it has been a pleasure speaking with you, Allie. Dr. Lovies. Love <laughs> Yeah. You too. you too. And I would just like to give you the opportunity to, if you want to share anything with the audience, any like final statements, anything I missed possibly during the conversation that you think is important for people to know about. So, um, I don't know that I, I don't know. I mean, we're all on our own paths of, of how we're approaching technology and coming to it. And I, I think we didn't get to talk a lot about collaborative thinking, uh, as much and, and the benefits of collaborative thinking. So spending more time, what you're doing, and sharing many voices uh, with the audience. I think that's wonderful. So we learn. Yeah. You can see how much I learned. I can quote the people that came from and introduced me to topics and, and taught it to me. And I, I weave it in. And now I, but it, it, it's from a, the collective knowledge. Yeah, no, that's a great down. point. Mm-hmm. It's a great point only because now, especially since everything is virtual, collaboration has a different meaning a little bit. There's, uh, It's all digital collaboration, for the most part at least. So we're all adapting to this new way of collaborating. So it'll be important yeah. to to figure it out really. So Keep it going. It's a good point. But nothing Thank happens so in a, on an island. So this is all, we're in it together. So I totally hear you there. Stay in touch. Thanks. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.